What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities. Words, English words, full of echoes, memories. So I'm diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem Sisay. Welcome to All About Sound from the British Library. I realised that quite a number of the chapters ended on the word sea. It seemed to be this kind of linguistic tick that I come back to. Everything goes back to the sea, which indeed is kind of what happens in geology. And I still find myself doing it at the end of a sentence, sea, full stop. What's meant by selkie, har, a spoot? Where would our language be without the sea? A ground adrift, anchorless, the wind taken from its sails. Let us take the spyglass and look. The ocean has inspired literary greats throughout the centuries. Take Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, more recent novels like Jan Martel's Life of Pi and a favourite of mine, Helen Sedgwick's When the Dead Come Calling. They have the sea as the saviour and the threat of the story. The ocean which surrounds us is a defining characteristic of British identity. Its wildlife, its wildness, its extremes are reflected in the way coastal communities still communicate. In today's episode, we are diving beneath the surface into the British Library Sound Archive to hear how language on this island nation has been shaped by the sea. And to help me on my quest, I'm joined by someone who's been drawn to the sea by swimming against the tide. Amy Liptrot is a Scottish writer, journalist, blogger. Amy won the Penn Ackerley Prize and the Wainwright Prize for her incredible memoir, The Outrun. Hello, Amy. Hello. And immediately, I am introduced, Amy, to a new word, outrun. So could you tell me its meaning relating to the book and maybe then tell us a bit about the book? Outrun is it's an agricultural term from Scotland, which means the sort of grazing land that's typically the hill land that's further away from a farmhouse. But it's also the name that my family called a stretch of land at the sheep farm where I grew up in Orkney. That's at the top of the farm and is uncultivated along the coast and edged with cliffs. So that's my outrun. I had such a joy reading your story. It's an honour to be here to hear you speak of it. And you returned in the Outrun to the Outrun from England to that wildness of home. 
Could you tell me a little bit about that, about the story at the heart of you? Mm. Yeah, so I lived in Orkney until I was 18 and then I moved away to Edinburgh and then to London. Things transpired and I ended up, I had an alcohol problem. I uh, had problems with substances and addiction and ended up in rehab in London. And um, after I finished the treatment programme, I didn't have a job and I was pretty lost and newly sober. And I went home to the farm to Orkney for, for what I thought would be just a few weeks until something came up for me back in London. But it ended up being a couple of years. And those couple of years are what the book, The Outrun, is about about how the island started holding on to me and the different things that I discovered or, or rediscovered during my time back home. And you bring the island to life or the islands bring you to life. Mm, that's a nice <laughs> way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> and you become a wild swimmer. I'd um, always got in the sea as a kid in the summer. Then this year when I came back to Orkney, I started getting involved with an eccentric group called the Orkney Polar Bear Club who go swimming in the sea year round. And I discovered that it was something that I got a real buzz from and still do. And I think it's a major thing that kind of replaces a lot of the things that I lost or that I missed from not having alcohol, the sort of absence that had been created when I stopped drinking and taking drugs, but getting in the freezing cold Atlantic Ocean has some comparable effects. And it's also, it's a way of experiencing and understanding the sea and the elements in the natural world. You understand what's going on with the weather and the tides and the seasons a lot more when you actually get in the sea on a regular basis. And you have to study it as well. You have to know which way the wind is blowing and what state the tides in before you choose which place to go in Orkney. But because Orkney's an island, there's always somewhere that's probably going to be sheltered from the wind direction. That's the perfect uh, description of Orkney as we begin our sound archive. And so how this works is that I've been rummaging through the library's sound archive and I found some recordings I'd like to play for you. So first up, I think politician and diarist Violet Bonham Carter agrees with you about Orkney. Orkney has always been my paradise since the first day I set foot on it. And I've come here this time rather against odds. After a long illness, I felt absolutely certain that Orkney, in spite of the uh, rigours of the journey, <laughs> is the one place in which I should recover quickly. Its air has always been to me the breath of life, most inebriating and exhilarating. To me, it is the most beautiful place in the world. The wide skies and seas and the glowing intensity of its colours. On a grey day, you could see the sea and the lochs glowing like Lady Slesley. That recording was made by the BBC and the original was in the Aberdeenshire Museum's service John Junner collection. It was digitised as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project, which we're celebrating in this series. She went to Orkney for illness. Yeah, she picks up on some of the special things about Orkney. I like this. Uh, inebriating and exhilarating is a nice way of putting it. And the wide skies is exactly what I miss when I'm away from home and what I appreciate. It's it interesting to see this kind of English woman's view of, of Orkney, very romanticised almost, and she describes it as my paradise. And it's maybe not always a paradise if you live there. 
Could you paint us a picture of the Orkney that you know? Well, Orkney's a modern, forward-thinking place with two small towns and a thriving tourism industry and lots of artists and craft people and uh, the renewable energy industry is something that Orkney's a centre of and it's got a sort of increasingly diverse population as people move there from other parts of the country and other parts of the world and you know all the coastline and beaches and seabirds which are just coming back to the cliffs at the moment and I'm looking forward to, to going out to sea. At the start of your book, The Outrun, you include a glossary. Many of the terms are linked to the sea. For example, ha, which is sea fog. Mm -hmm. Home, pronounced home, mm -hmm. which is an offshore islet. Mm -hmm. It's a Norse name that, like a lot of Orkney words, they come from Scandinavia and, and the Old Norn language. Har is used throughout Scotland, it's not just specific to Orkney. So there's a oh. mixture of Scots and, and Norse and some Celtic influence, but not so much in the dialect. And tangles for seaweed, I think, is beautiful. I love that, yeah. The tang and wear, it's sometimes called. Tang when it's in the sea and it's wear when it's washed up, but tangles is so evocative. And yol, a simple boat? Yeah, I think that must be a Norse one as well. So the identity that's inside the language is mm -hmm. itself a mixture of Norse, of English, of sorry, Scots, uh, etc. And English, um, yeah. People in Orkney are particularly proud of our Norse connections. You know, Orkney and Shetland have been part of Scotland for 500 years, but for 500 yes. years before that, they were part of Scandinavia. They were owned by Norway. So people are very aware of that and you see it in the place names and the way that we look at the world. Do you have a favourite Orcadian word associated with the sea? Oh, <laughs> I like tangles as well, actually. And all of the birds, well, a lot of the common birds have Orcadian dialect names, and I particularly like Tysty, which the common name is Black Guillemot, but they're, to me they're a really different bird than a Guillemot, so it makes sense that they have their own name, Tysty. We're going to hear from people whose daily livelihoods rely on the sea. We'll hear an interview with David Jackson and Graham Hale about their work as Coast Guards in St Levin in 2001. The original recording is held at the Telegraph Museum in Port Curnow and it was digitised as part of the library's Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. And how long did you do, David? Oh, I didn't do as long as Walter. I did 35 years. Did you? In the Coast Guard service. Yeah. And um, we had some quite harrowing times out there. Amazingly, with wrecks, you get up in the morning and you know there's a wreck on the coast, you can smell the diesel oil coming out. Really? Yeah, we smelled that particularly. That's the one down at uh, Wireless yeah. Point, Walter, right for you And the uh, diesel mixes with salt water, it gives a certain pungent smell. Yeah. And we knew then there was something wrong that, uh, that morning. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we'd be there in yeah. two seconds and get stuff together and we'd be away. The Coast Guard. Well, there was a very foggy chance. night that night, and the Coast Guards couldn't see actually the boat ashore at that couldn't particular they? time. Yeah. It was very sad. No, they all mm. lost their lives. A French Did tour, yeah. I think it was yeah. 17 on that boat. 17. So he came in right in mm. near Port Chapel. I was trying to decipher where the accent was. Is that a Cornish accent? It is Cornish. Yeah. You were right. Lovely to have that on record. It's quite distinctive and, and different, isn't it? 
Sally is the girl who comes from our alley. Way, hey, bully in the alley. Sally is the girl from Shimbo Alley. Bully on the Shimbo now. Writing about a place, recording it, is to add to its ecology and mythology, if the two can be separated. The land and the sea becomes metaphor for the living condition. Would that be right? Yeah, I often write emptying kind of echoes of my own psychology in the world and the land around me. And yeah, I'm particularly interested in the sea and the cliffs and geology. And like in the outrun, I'm looking a bit at actually the physics of fluid dynamics and how the how waves work and how waves break. And sometimes I can't help but seeing kind of like natural laws in that that can possibly apply to our emotional states as well. Any physicist listening would probably be horrified, but um, I suppose that's how I tend to work. And I think I'm interested in how the kind of landscapes of our childhood affect our psyches. And for me, I grew up on a farm right on the Atlantic coast next to cliffs with the ocean stretching out and the horizon far away. I've always had the sense the world is just over the horizon. And also I've had extreme forces around me. I've been used to quite dramatic weather and dramatic forces and also quite sort of dramatic things in my family. And these are the kind of experiences that I've gone on to seek in my adult life. You know, I've kind of been used to the extremes because I grew up in quite a extreme and elemental place. All these things are kind of of interest to me. Psychogeography, I suppose, how place affects us. And how do you think the dangers posed by the sea affect the way you write? I mean, there's a line in the outrun, which is, I grew up next to cliffs, I've never been afraid of heights, which I think is quite a formative sort of idea about me as a, as a writer and a person. And you know, early on in the book, I talk about how we had a young dog that went over the edge of the cliff. And, mm. and always in my life, that knowledge of the cliff as a dangerous place has just been, you know, right there on the edge of my psyche, an edge of danger to everything that I do. <laughs> Something you write in the Outrun has really stayed with me. You say imagination is important here. These islands could be bleak, uncompromising places if it weren't for enchantments such as the porpoise rising like heather blether in the offing, always just beyond our reach. I want to play you some recordings that I think really speak to the way we embrace imagination by the sea. So let's start with a clip from The Listening Project, recorded for the BBC. Here's farmer Wilfred Keyes and fish salesman Thomas Kyle speaking in Belfast in 2013 about the superstitions of fishermen. Well, there are a lot of superstitions. I, you know, I, I've never been in a fishing boat, mm -hmm. but I've heard stories that if somebody's gone down, uh, there are certain things that he hears or sees or whatever, mm -hmm. and he'll turn tail and go home. Is that right, or is, it, is that all in the past? Or well, I couldn't just speak yeah. now, but I know in my time at the fashion, as a wee fella, you know, as a wee fella, you notice everything, Wilfred. You know, he yeah. needs responsibility. You know, you weren't allowed to mention rats on boats. That oh. was a, der a dreadful thing. Don't mention a rat. Oh. Don't mention a pig. Yeah, yeah. Don't mention a salmon. Any any reason for that? I mean, is that, or is it? How did that come about? You know, I don't really know, but uh, they, they were the, yeah, you know, there, yeah. was, there were certain people yeah. in the village. Uh -huh. And I've no memory of this, but my father mm -hmm. would have told me that some of the skippers that he fished along mm -hmm. was a young man 
if they had met a certain lady walking mm-hmm. to the harbour in the morning mm-hmm. or in the evening to fish for her, mm-hmm. they would have turned and called it off. Right. Because they, and we mm-hmm. we would all say, oh, a lot of old silly nonsense. But yeah. the fellow would have said, the day that you went on to the fishing was yeah. the day you tore your nets or you lost yeah. something yeah. or, you know. and Could so, have been coincidence or, you know, but this... And then for yeah. fun, you know, yeah. and I would have been involved in this when I was younger. Yeah. We would have left tins of salmon in the wheelhouse window and things for men that were very superstitious, <laughs> just for the fun of it. And <laughs> we would have been watching and you'd have seen the, you'd have seen the tin of salmon hurtling across the harbour. <laughs> <laughs> Such goes on. The law concerning mermaids, huh? There was once a law concerning mermaids. My friends think it a wondrous thing that the British Empire was so thorough. It had invented a law for everything. <laughs> and in this law, it was decreed were any to be found in their usual spots, showing off like dolphins, sunbathing on rocks, they would no longer belong to themselves. And maybe this is the problem with empires, how they have forced us to live in a world lacking in mermaids, mermaids who understood that they simply were and did not need our permission to exist or to be beautiful. The law concerning mermaids only caused mermaids to pass a law concerning man that they would never again cross our boundaries of sand, never again lift their torsos up from the surf, never again wave at sailors, salt dripping from their curls, never again enter our dry and stifling world. Hear your homeboys, let her go. Swing her head round into the weather. Hear your ho, boys. Let her go, boys. Sailing homeward to Falmouth Bay. Sailing homeward to Falmouth Bay. Sailing homeward to Falmouth Beautiful. You just heard the Sea Shanty group, the Oggy Men, singing their version of Mingali. And before that, Kai Miller was reading his poem, The Law Concerning Mermaids. That recording was made by the British Library at the Power of Caribbean Poetry, Word and Sound Conference in Cambridge. Any initial thoughts on the recordings, Amy? Some lovely voices there. I really like the mermaid poem. This the kind of absurdity of of it making a serious point. There were people laughing in that recording, but I didn't find it funny. I thought it was quite powerful and beautiful. I felt the same. Yeah, it's the idea of the absurdity of trying to regulate the mythical world. I think it kind of speaks to almost like how far coastal places can feel from centres of power sometimes and how much certain ways of thinking can feel ridiculous when you're at these edge places and these edge places often have a lot of um, folklore attached to them that takes place when it's misty in Orkney. People say that this island arises and it can only be seen when it's misty 
some people say they've seen it, but nobody has ever been there. But the kind of superstition is that if you row towards it and you have to hold metal in your hand, you might be able to set foot on it. That's Heather Blether. And I think these stories kind of arose from people seeing kind of mirages in the mist. And same with stories about mermaids. They kind of arose from people at sea being confused by the calls of seals. So there's kind of a continuum between stories of seals and mermaids. And in between those are selkies, which are seals that transform into people. But they're all kind of a bit misty and nebulous and maybe hard to explain in the kind of terms that might be understood in more formal circumstances. So that's why that poem really spoke to me. I loved it. Why do you think storytelling is so important by the sea, whether in song or myths, legends, mythical creatures, etc.? Each bit of coastline has many different memories associated with it, so things that washed up or things that went over the edge or animals that were seen there, and I guess it's a way of preserving those memories. I mean, even just the stretch of coastline where I grew up, about in the outrun about a fishing boat that was wrecked there, there was also a huge disaster at the, where people drowned at the end of the First World War. You see orca off there. There are so many different layers that, that a piece of coastline holds. When you returned to Orkney, mm-hmm. you were in a state of distress. Did you ever feel the power of mysticism, I want to say, possess you? Possibly a little bit, but what it really possessed was maybe not in an experience, but it possessed my writing. So I found that these stories and mythical creatures started appearing in my writing rather than me actually thinking that I saw them when I was out swimming or something. It kind of struck on some kind of like universal truth or truth about the place. For instance, when I started taking my uh, wetsuit off when I'd been scuba diving, I felt like I was taking off my seal skin, like in the stories. And I, I love that kind of heritage, just the really rich cultural heritage that we have in the islands. Metaphors linked to the sea are very common throughout the UK, and even as your writing is so suffused with words linked to the ocean, how did living so close to the sea affect the way you write and communicate? For example, in the outrun, we ended up back here again and again, washed back like the inevitable tide, to quote you. And it was simply a habit that had got out of control over the years. I had worn my brakes down like the action of waves on rock so much that they could never be repaired. I guess those things that I saw when I'm looking for a metaphor, I guess the things that I've experienced are going to be the first things that come to mind. In Alcoholics Anonymous, there's this big thing about a higher power, which I struggled with a lot. But then when I really asked myself if I knew anything about a higher... Like, big powers, you know, what came to mind was the beach being shifted after a storm and the waves and the cliffs and, you know, so it's kind of my metaphor of choice. But when I was reading through the outrun on one of the final drafts, I realised that quite a number of the chapters ended on the word sea. It seemed to be this kind of linguistic tick that I come back to. Everything goes back to the sea, which indeed is kind of what happens to water and what happens to rubbish and what happens in geology. And I still find myself doing it at the end of a sentence, sea, full stop. So it's definitely, it's definitely in me.
From Homer's The Odyssey to Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner to Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea, writers have been inspired by the ocean since we started creating. But which tales or works of literature about the sea have inspired you, Amy? Well, it's the big one, it's Moby Dick. I was reading it, it took me 18 months or something, and I was carried it round with me for a long time, and it was sort of this um, totem of my early sobriety was that I was going to finish this book. But I think one particular thing about that book that influenced me is the way that it uses non-fiction material, so just kind of scientific information almost, like there's a whole chapter about sharks and their ecology and behaviour, and it's just as readable and gripping as a novel or as kind of a more traditional plot. And I think that was very influential on me in kind of thinking that just presenting interesting factual information about the natural world can be very readable. And also just the fact that I've managed to finish reading the book in sobriety, which I never managed to do when I was drunk, was a really good motivator to stay sober as well. So, thank you, Moby Dick. <laughs> There's so much joy in the sea in the outrun. Somehow the sea becomes a metaphor of sobriety and freedom as you swim in it with a group of women from Orkney, wild swimmers, as we've spoken about. The swims are a way to celebrate, you say. We go on holiday to relax by the sea, to swim, surf, spot wildlife, and my own favourite, to float in it, like a starfish looking up to the sky. Amy, thanks for exploring the archive with me. What are you going to be taking away from the recordings you've heard today? I'd love to hear the, the different voices from the received pronunciation lady who called Orkney inebriating, which I thought was a really interesting choice of word, to the Cornish accent and the Irish accents. I just love the rich voices that we have around the British Isles. So thank you for that. Hear your boys, let her go, boys, swing her head. superstitions that you know I, I've never been oh they have forced us to live in a world lacking in mermaids mermaids diesel mixes with salt water he gives a certain pungent smell and we knew then there was something wrong that morning on a grey day you could see the sea and the lofts glowing like Lapis Lazuli sailing homeward to Amy's most recent book, The Instant, was published in 2022. It's an unapologetic look at the addictive power of love and lust. Our exploration of the archive has come to an end for another episode, but there's so much more to listen to. If you'd like to immerse yourself in more sounds of the sea, just head to bl.uk forward slash coast. And to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode, do take a look at the episode description. This is a Pixiu production for the British Library. The producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. Next week, food writer Jonathan Nunn joins the listening party to sample recordings that stimulate the taste buds as we explore the relationship between food and language. Until next time, from me, Lem Sisay, thanks for listening. To play us out, 
Here's a song that was recorded in 1981 at BBC Radio Brighton that encapsulates the playful nature of being by the sea. Oh, mum's old bed, dad's old bed, the kids are suckers too. Granddad thought he'd go and have a streak, didn't think that he got the bare face cheek. My old girl, didn't she look a bitch? Wobbling out to the water on the Brighton News Beach.